Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome back to The Bigger Picture, brought to you by the British Film Institute. I'm Henry. And I'm Anna. Anna, what's the closest your life has ever come to body horror? Um, Probably the time when I went to a film festival and very randomly, I don't think these two things are related, but my little finger started turning blue for some reason and it was blue for about a month. You went to the film festival, it turned blue and they're not related. What could have happened? I don't know, maybe it's not too many body horror films. What shade of blue? Sky blue? No, it was deep purplish blue. Gross. What about you? Tasty. I've got a great one. <laughs> when I was 19, I went on holiday in France with a few friends after sixth form and I stood on a sea urchin and Ouch. got the spines, about two inch of spine, stuck oh, in my foot, five no. or six of them. I tried that night picking them out with tweezers. No. My foot bled horribly and I later learned that like a character we're going to talk about later, the sea urchin spine digs itself further and further into your foot the more you try and take it out. So what you need to do is put this kind of compress on that turns your foot essentially into mush and then two weeks later your foot explodes and shoots all these spines out. It was truly disgusting. I mean it's 10am. This is downright rude. But it was so cool. Anyway, I asked because Ridley Scott's Alien was released 40 years ago this September. To celebrate, we're going to dig into the film, pick apart its influences and burst out the other end of the pod by talking about what it went on to influence in turn. But before we do that, what have you discovered since last time we met Anna? Well, I've watched a whole bunch of new series that have arrived on Netflix. And just to a disclaimer, Netflix this is again. not sponsored by <laughs> Netflix. Um, it's however, almost like they've got lots of skin in the game. <laughs> it's almost like they've got a lot of great content. Mm, and lots of money. Mm. However, there's two things that I've been watching. And the one I want to talk about is Russian Doll, which is a new limited series starring Natasha Lyonne, which is basically like a very New York-y, very contemporary version of Groundhog Day. Let's fuck this party in the mouth. Sweet birthday, baby! No, life's short, carpe diem, etc., right? Sorry, Natasha Leone is a sort of brash, very fiercely independent woman who gets stuck in a time loop where she has to relive her death, the last day of her life, over and over again. Sweet birthday, baby! What was I just doing? What? What do you mean? I'm out of here. Ah! And she meets another guy who's in the same predicament as she is, and they have to figure out together why this is happening, how they can stop and break the loop. Didn't you get the news? We're about to die. It doesn't matter. I die all the time. And Natasha Leon is always excellent. This series in particular is just so smartly written, 
unbelievably well performed on every single level and just kind of creates this character that is sometimes borderline unlikable but that's what's so refreshing about her and also she's a woman a single woman in her mid-30s with a cat who is happy being alone and kind of completely not dependent on kind of romantic entanglements to further the story or to develop her character as well which and she's just having fun and has a lot of very New York friends in living in fabulous penthouse apartments which seems really simple but it's actually bizarrely refreshing fuck sweet birthday baby what is in this stay away from me I'm coming down the stairs Also, another cool new property built on video game logic, because she's a video game coder, and the idea of dying, learning from your mistakes and doing the same thing again, very cool. What about you? What have you discovered since last time? The Lego Movie 2, which I saw the other week. A lifetime has passed since the horrific events of Taco Tuesday. I love the first Lego movie. It was weirdly anti-capitalist for a movie that was supposed to be shilling loads of plastic toys to kids. It was funny. It was clever. Once, everything was awesome. Now, everything is bleak. Hey, Lucy. I brought you coffee. Coffee. The bitter liquid that provides the only semblance of pleasure left in these dark times. Oh my goshness, did I interrupt you brooding just now? This one, in the way of all sequels, isn't as funny or as clever, but it did make me cry twice. It's got a lot about sibling rivalry in it and about how we should learn to play with our brother or sister and look after each other. See, that wasn't so bad, nothing got in. Ah, Something got in! Bring me your fiercest leader! This guy is the... This guy was a fierce warrior. Okay, well, technically, I did the warrior stuff. So you fought and master built and kicked butt, and then the hapless male was the leader. He, uh, well. At the moment, I'm going through a thing with my two young kids where I'm trying to get them to play together, so it all hit home rather hard. Far harder than a film about plastic toys. Does it really have should. some absolutely catchy bangers in it? It's as got, well? well, everything is still awesome, and it's also got <laughs> this song's gonna get stuck into your head. I have heard about this one, yeah. <laughs> We're already popping. <laughs> Okay, try it. Yeah, I'm not sure that was it. Drop it. Feel like I've been in this place a month. We should have landed in this place in the first place. Couldn't have landed on this damn ball and all that. Well, as soon as we patch this thing up and get out of here. The sooner we can go home. This place gives me the creeps. Onwards and upwards for a long, long time to the Nostromo, a spaceship which, as Alien begins, is crawling its way home through the stars. On board, the seven strong crew are in stasis until a distress beacon from a nearby planet prompts Mother, the Nostromo's computer, to wake everyone up early. The crew, including Warrant Officer Ellen Ripley, played by Sigourney Weaver, decide to investigate the call, heading down to the planet and a meeting with an extraterrestrial being that might not be too friendly. Anna, it's been a few years since I watched Alien, but two things stood out. First of all, it's still incredible. Second of all, it's much more of a workplace satire slash blue-collar workplace film than a space horror at some points. And we've actually got a piece on the BFI.org coming up about this very thing, that Ripley and the crew are established as essentially working Joes who hate their job and just want to get home for a long, long time before we even see a glimpse of anything that's about to come and rip them to shreds. Ash? 
Any suggestions from you or Mother? No, we're still collating. <laughs> you what? You're still collating? I find that hard to believe. What would you like to do? Just what you've been doing, Ash. Nothing. I've got access to Mother now, and I'll get my own answers. Thank you. Oh, absolutely. Rewatching this film, and I mean, I've been a big fan for a long time, but I haven't rewatched it in a while, and God damn, does it stand up. Mm-hmm. I agree and disagree with you. I think it's both an incredible workplace satire, because you're right, all of the characters are blue-collar workers, and actually the people we get to know the most are those sort of spaceship workers. They're not kind of the lead scientists or anything like that. We don't have that removal of, you know, they're thinking about bigger picture, really high-level intellectual stuff, and they've got the full overview of what's happening. They're just there to do their precise job, and all they want to do is get home. And they mention it several times as they develop and as the film develops as well, all they care about is getting home and just getting the job done. But it doesn't shout the working class aspect from the rooftops, although it's there for you to see. But I disagree in that it is a horror movie as well. It's a space horror, but I'd even say that it's more following the structures of a slasher film than it does of a body horror film, because it is ultimately, you know, located all in one enclosed environment, the spaceship. It has a tight-knit group of characters. And then there's this one outsider, which is the alien, that starts spoiler alert for a movie that's 40 years old, um, starts picking apart and killing as many members of this group as possible, which is kind of the same model as any slasher movie where a killer appears and starts knocking off people left, right and center until someone remains alive or not. (laughs) I don't think we can worry about spoilers too much. I think you need to see Alien before you listen to this. Going back to the working class thing, it really interests me that this is like the anti-Star Trek in that the Star Trek crew are very much about adventure, exploration, about stretching the possibilities of space travel to as far as it can go. And what Ridley Scott and Dan O'Bannon, the writer of this, brought to it was this idea that space travel now at this point in this story's history is boring and this is a commercial towing vehicle and they're just doing yet another job before they get home and then the crucial decision that the characters make in the film is whether to go down to the planet to answer the distress beacon where the alien is or not and the crux of the decision comes down to well we're going to lose our shares and lose our money from this job if we don't go and do it because it's in our contract to do it. There is a clause in the contract which specifically states any systematized transmission indicating a possible intelligent origin must be investigated. I don't want to hear it. We don't know that it's intelligent. I want to go home and party. Parker, will you just listen to the man? On penalty of total forfeiture of shares. You got that? (laughs) Yeah. All right, we're going in. Yeah, we're going in. So it's always that push between the boss says I have to do it and I just want to get home to my family. I love that, that you can take this fantastic setting and just make it completely boring and anodyne in, the, in the, like most of our lives down yeah, here on Earth. Yeah, and it's down even to the way they're characterized as well. Like, totally. you know, they're wearing all of these, um, like, workers' jumpsuits and a little bit sweaty, kind of grimy. Like, all of the ship as well is quite like a workplace environment. It's not, you know, slick and shiny and futuristic. It's sort of dark and slightly depressing again 
guess if you spend several years on that ship as well, just kind of doing your job. But at the same time, there's this really great scene between Ripley, Sigourney Weaver's character, and Harry Dean Stanton's character, where they're basically challenging her, exactly like you said. It's like, well, we're going to lose our shares. We're not going to do any more work until we get confirmation that this is not going to affect our pay or whatever. And it has its roots from that in a film called Dark Star, which was released a few years earlier. And that was written by Dan O'Bannon, the same writer, but made with John Carpenter. And that was a similar story in that it told a story about people who'd been in space for far too long and it started to go loopy. And that was pitched as a comedy. So the crew in that are much more eccentric and much weirder. And the alien in that is this giant shiny beach ball that bounces around with claws on the bottom. It's not scary at all. But Dan wrote that film thinking that it was going to be a broad comedy and the audiences came to it and just didn't laugh. So his Alien was his response to that film in saying, I'm going to scare the crap out of you this time with another workplace set horror, essentially. And I love that idea that you can build anything out of these very normal situations, a giant comedy or a great horror film as well. But do you think that in rewatching it now in 2019, the working class slash workplace elements stand up more than the space slash slash a horror element of it? No, definitely not. But it's a film of two halves, isn't it? What it does really well, and I don't mean to sound like a grumbly old man, but a lot of films don't feel like they have the time to do now, particularly bigger films like this, is build the world and make you feel like you're part of it. Down to things like set dressing, like Ridley Scott apparently built the set and then because they were shooting on widescreen, decided that he was going to chop a good four feet out of the walls to make it feel a lot more cramped. So Sigourney Weaver, who's something six foot something, mm-hmm. was constantly running around the set, ducking underneath these doorways, which immediately makes you feel like you're in a kind of slightly poxy, horrible workplace environment so it does that for the first half of the film and then the second half it's all stronger because you see that world being ripped apart by something that's literally alien to the situation they're in so i love that the two halves are built that carefully and put together that well whereas the modern equivalent it's kind of assumed that you understand what the space genre is about so you can just get on with the action straight away there's not enough patience given to the audience to let them feel the world before it starts getting torn apart Yeah, and also in the same way, not just the world building, it's the character building as well, because it's a good 35, 40 minutes before any kind of alien activity actually starts happening in the film. And by that point, we're already invested in all the characters, we've seen their dynamic, we've gotten to know their personalities and their quicks a little bit. So when shit starts to go down, you actually care what happens to them, whether they get murdered, who gets murdered, and then their reactions, so the performances and the characters' reactions to each other's deaths and them in peril is also really genuine. And I think especially Ripley's character, I think, is built in a really, really smart and she's not really positioned as a protagonist from the very beginning. She's sort of in the background. She's sort of quieter. She's not the extroverted. She's a bit Marty. <laughs> you said that, not me. She is, no, though. but she is, you know, very professional. Yeah. Borderline cold to a degree, you know, well, she's extremely efficient to the degree. And we get to know her really, really slowly until all of a sudden she becomes the de facto protagonist and the last person standing. And she needs to survive, basically, in order to be able to tell the story. It's a bit like if the person in the office who has a go at you for not putting new paper in the printer, the job's worth, then suddenly becomes the action hero at the end of your workday. Exactly. I'm for killing that goddamn thing right now. Okay. Well, let's talk about killing it. We know it's using the air shafts. Will you listen to me, Parker? Shut up! Let's hear it. It's using the air shafts. We don't know That's that. That's the only way. We'll move in pairs. We'll go step by step and cut off every bulkhead and every vent until we have it cornered, and then we'll blow it the fuck out into space. Is that acceptable to you? 
She's all about protocol, isn't exactly, she? Exactly, yeah. yeah. But she is also the de facto leader. Like you can see that she's got leadership skills within her, but is not in that position yet, but ends up being in that role towards the second half of the film. Can we start talking about the gory stuff now? <laughs> so they go down onto the planet. And is it John Hurt? It is John Hurt. Poor old John Hurt is the kind of scout advance party. Goes in, sees a thing, looks like a leathery egg, according to him. Wait a minute, this movement. Life. Touches it, and out comes one of the most horrifying contraptions ever put on cinema, which is the face hugger. The face hugger wraps around his face. Great name for a disgusting a, thing. I mean, it does it does exactly what it says also, on the tin. Also, all of the names <laughs> that come out of all of the gory stuff in Alien yeah. are fantastic. The face hugger, the chest buster. Yeah, all designed by a Swiss artist called H.R. Geiger, and... Mm-hmm. These designs are incredible. They're kind of biomechanical, slick, horrible, phallic and vaginal designs that... Very gooey. Very gooey. <laughs> and apparently all the goo was KY jelly as well. So really? there's an extra element on it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but the face hugger in particular, there was something about watching it again now because I, I remember what the alien looks like and the alien looks astonishing and mm-hmm. it, it's genuinely one of the few monsters that's been revealed in a film where I've been like, that is as scary as the build-up that you've given to us before this point, right? Mo- most monsters in film are pretty disappointing, mm-hmm. but the alien does look purely terrifying. But the face hugger was even more insidious. There's something about that shot where John Hurt's character is lying on the bench in the medical lab and they're mm-hmm. bringing him back up to the ship. My God. And the face hugger is sat on his face and it's breathing with him or keeping him alive by breathing for him, basically, while it plants an egg in his chest. What the hell is that? Jesus Christ. It's just so purely disgusting, I mean, that whole idea. Do you know why I think it's so incredibly gross We're watching it? And I can see you just squirm and I be am. uncomfortable just I'm thinking, thinking about, about it. Yeah. As well. <laughs> <laughs> it's because the face hugger literally hugs almost every single of his like orifices. Yeah. His eyes, his mouth, his nose, his ears, like it covers his entire face. And you know afterwards that it's like laying its eggs or whatever inside of him, which is another level of gross. <laughs> but at the same time, it's the fact that he is keeping him alive, but he's like dehumanizing him. Yeah. He's there, but he's just a vessel. He is no longer the person that he was. It's a symbiotic relationship, but one that is degrading. Like those ants where a bug gets into their head and basically controls their mind. They turn into zombie ants, eat their brains away. slightly perturbed by how much you know about <laughs> creatures like this. <laughs> Got the mind of a 10-year-old boy in there, really. Um, and then what happens to John Hurt afterwards? Well, the facehugger sort of leaves him be and mm-hmm. kind of disappears. And then he sort of seemingly... It's all okay, right? Nothing's going to happen. Yeah, obviously nothing's going to happen. No. Yeah, he's fine. He's still it's fine. And he sort of is in a little bit of a coma for a few days. And then he sort of miraculously recovers and they're all having dinner. And then one of the most iconic scenes in horror film history and in film history in general happens. Something erupts out of his chest 
And I read that the actors kind of participating in the scene did not know what was going to happen. So that reaction, that shock on their faces is genuine when this thing, the chest buster, which again is an incredibly phallic little monster, yeah. um, erupts from his chest and kind of just, you know, obviously John Hurt is now dead. And the face hugger just kind of, which has a little face, it which does, makes yeah. it incredibly tiny creepy. Yeah. yeah, tiny little teeth kind of looks around and then squirms away. Yeah. And, you know, we know now that that is the, the baby alien. It's incredible, isn't it? Just like it's even talking amazing. about it just makes me feel queasy again. I mean, exactly. The one thing that undercuts it for me is that this was made in, what, 1979? Yeah. Yes, of course, 40 years. 1979. <laughs> but there is something in the special effects that, revelatory as they were and as advanced as they were, there's parts where, particularly when you see the monsters move, it still looks a tiny bit corny. Like the bit where the chest oh. buster squirrels away into the corner of the room. It broke it a little bit for me, watching it from a modern point of view. Because I was like, well, that just looks like you've pulled it along on a piece of fishing wire. But it doesn't Incorrect. take away the power of the scene before it. I don't think it takes away the power of the scene. And you know what? The thing that you were mentioning before, the fact that all of the the monsters and the different kind of stages of life of the monster, so kind of the egg, the face hugger, the chest buster, and then the kind of the ultimate alien, there's something slightly human about them mm -hmm. as well. Not in the way they're presented, but they all kind of draw from something that reminds us of something that comes from the human body. The chest buster looks like a penis with teeth. <laughs> <laughs> And like then the the actual um, alien is sort of shaped like a humanoid thing, but with a giant curved head. So there's something recognizable in the way that it moves, but it's obviously not human. But it's those glimpses of the things that remind us of ourselves mm. in those creatures that make them terrifying because you almost instinctively want to project some sort of humanity on the, onto them, but there's none. That's what makes the relationship between Ripley and the alien so interesting. And that's what kind of sustain the entire franchise for me as well. It's that it feels like there's a, a, an equality between them, even though the alien is an animal. I, mean, yeah. I guess Ripley's an animal too, but they're both kind of trying to survive in these circumstances. Exactly. And then the, there is sort of a bond between them as well, which kind of gets more developed as the franchise went on. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Oh. 
traps can eat through the hole. That thing's gonna eat through the goddamn hole. Come on! What's going on? This way. And it, I think it really speaks to the design because I don't think what we're talking about is particularly revelatory. Like showing a kind of human aspect to animalistic alien things is obviously going to evoke something in an audience. And it, that's happened now since Alien towards Pan's Labyrinth or things like that. Like really great monsters have something that is human about them mm-hmm. that can make you relate to them. But it, it just speaks to the strength of Geiger's design that these things felt so otherworldly and horrible at the same time as feeling so close and familiar. And Absolutely. it must have been a really hard balance to strike, I imagine. There is one <laughs> animal in the film that you're not particularly a big fan of, or is there? Oh, that would be Jonesy. Yes. The ship's cat. I mean, Jonesy the cat. Jonesy? <sighs> Jonesy is completely superfluous to the narrative. In a film stuffed full of animal behaviour that is terrifying, exciting, and mundane but story building in the way that we've already talked about, Jonesy is a complete cherry on top that adds nothing to the flavour. Jonesy gets lost in the ship's hull for a while. And Harry Dean Stanton's character has to chase him around a bit, and that's the reason why Harry Dean gets taken out by the alien. But that's about it for narrative development and Jonesy. But you like Jonesy. Of course I like Jonesy. I'm not a cat person, I have to be honest. Yeah, I think that's the thing. It's just because you're dead inside. But also, <laughs> What does Jonesy add? He's a connection for Ripley. He's the only living being that's sort of part of the crew that she can take back with her. So she's not kind of the only survivor. And in the sequel in Aliens, she takes him to be kind of of cry frozen with her and they wake up in the sequel 57 years later and the cat is with her. It's a connection that she can take with her to something incredibly traumatic that happened to her and that she will deal with consistently throughout the sequels as well. Jones is a Pixar character that's got no place in Alien anyway. (laughs) Speaking of animals and human behavior, and the third element of this is kind of robotics and mechanics. And there's one character in particular, and again, huge spoilers coming up, who isn't all that they seem in Alien. And this is a trope that's repeated throughout the rest of the franchise, pretty much. And that's Ash, played by Ian Holm. And he is an android who's sent by the Whalen Corporation, which is the company that owns the ship, to essentially ensure that no matter what happens, no matter how many people die, the alien, which is this advanced life form that they want to study, is brought back to Earth, even if everybody else is taken out by the alien. Bring back life form. Priority one. All other priorities rescinded. There's a damn company. What about our lives, you son of a bitch? I repeat, all of the priorities are ascended. And the way that that secret is kept is astonishingly well done, particularly because of Holmes' performance. He's this... At the time, he was a theatre actor who mm-hmm. had a few parts in films, but wasn't really a known quantity. So I think that helped. But mm-hmm. also the way he just holds himself back. He's a science officer from the start. So he's got the kind of stereotype, slightly withheld, mm-hmm. characterless and emotionless thing going on anyway. I didn't see anything coming that there was any sense that he was anything other than what he was. And then when it's revealed that he is actually an android and against the crew, and has been all along, it's a real twist that works. It's a superb twist. And also, rewatching it now, there's so many different layers to Ian Holmes' performance there. Like, there's little things that he does that once you know who Ash really is, you can spot them. So he just leaves them there in plain sight, kind of his slightly mannered behavior. Like, he's trying to imitate human behavior, but he isn't quite getting it right, but obviously fooling everyone perfectly down to a team. 
But his whole character and the reveal around that and the fact that the whole mission was pretty much just to discover and analyze and bring back to Earth the alien the alien form, and the fact that he is a tool of the Wayland Corporation, again, taps into this kind of um, working class first in corporate conversation that we were, t- we were having earlier, which is actually all of them mean nothing. This mm-hmm. crew that we've been bonding with as audience members and that we're sort of rooting for and that we hope does not get murdered by an alien actually means nothing in the bigger on the bigger scale. And Ash, this android character, is actually our entry point into a much larger world that is hinted at and then developed in the sequels and the video games and the whole kind of alien franchise. So it's an incredibly smart twist. And that encounter with Ripley and Ash, where she discovers the true nature of their mission, is so heartbreaking because she was so fastidious and professional and kind of dedicated to her job. And then she discovers that she means absolutely nothing and they would happily all be butchered for the sake of the corporate message. Yeah, totally. There's a tiny little scene where um, Ash kind of gears himself up to do something before before the kind of big betrayal, basically. And he does this weird little jog on the spot slash kind of airboxing thing to himself. And I felt like having watched it and, re- and known that he was kind of a product for corporation, he'd seen like some sort of Steve Jobs style CEO do that before they do a big presentation and copied that as human behavior. And then you get things like that later on in the other films with Michael Fassbender playing David, who is the kind mm-hmm. of Android replacement. But it's understood that he is a robot. I guess you can't do the same thing twice, but there's, there is something about the insidiousness of having Ash there as a kind of insider agent that makes do it Do you work. think that Ash is sort of overlooked or shadowed by other androids in the alien world like David or Bishop. Yeah, I think, I mean, particularly with Fassbender's performance, like he, mm. he's acting robot. Like there's an awful lot of, I am robot and this is me kind of processing human emotion. I can blend in with your workforce effortlessly. David, what do you think about? I think about anything. Children play. Angel. Universe. Robot. Michael Fassbender is an amazing actor, but like, you know, there's a lot of emotional narrative stake put in that idea that this is Michael Fassbender playing mm-hmm. a robot, which again, over over um, eggs the pudding. I was trying to think of an electronics analogy. I can't really. Overloads the circuit board? That would do. Anyway. <laughs> Michael Fassbender, he's very much playing a robot and, it, and you can see that happening and it doesn't really add anything. Whereas, the, as we've already said, the kind of the levels of Holmes' character and the fact that he was, as you said, playing this robot all along and it was there in plain sight, but you never saw it is, is sixth sentient in its <laughs> <laughs> deafness. <laughs> Before we talk about what Alien influenced, I want to go on to talk about the final girl thing. Can you tell me what that is, Anna? Because this is your wheelhouse. This is, this is my jam. This is you. This is absolutely my jam. So the final girl trope, just to explain a little bit, is a term that Carol Clover, who's an American academic, came up with in her book, Men, Women and Chainsaws from 1992. And basically what it means is the final girl is the last girl standing in horror cinema. So she is the one that survives all the killings and is effectively the audience surrogate. So we identify with her and are rooting for her to kind of survive and overcome the killer. She's got a couple of traits that are appealing 
hear most usually. So she usually is quite androgynous. So she's not overtly sexual. She's usually a virgin because of this. She usually is kind of in the background. So she's not kind of particularly the main protagonist. And also, most importantly, she sort of discovers an inner strength because of the struggle, because of facing the threat or the killer and kind of becomes their leader in order to overcome him and survive and be there to tell the tale. So that's kind of a really brief overview of what the final goal means. And obviously Ripley sort of fits into a lot of these things, but I don't necessarily think personally that she is a final girl because of the way that she was written. So Ripley is one of the very early examples of a role that was initially written for a man and then was gender swapped. So she was never designed kind of on paper to be a female character. And I think that's partly why she works so well, because she's not kind of imbued with this, you know, oh, she needs to have a romantic interest. She needs to be naked half of the time. Although there is a kind of, you know, a sexualized scene towards the end of the movie. But also, she is presented as a sort of fastidious, not an innocent, not a discovering her in a strength. She's already strong. She's already super smart. She is really composed and independent. And you can see that even as the film kind of progresses, she is the de facto leader. She cares really deeply about her crew and about the mission and about her work. However... Alien came out the year after Halloween came out. So Jamie Lee Curtis's character in that movie is pretty much the prototype for the final girl trope Mm. in a way. And Ripley is kind of completely different. And I think part of it is the fact that she is, obviously Sigourney Weaver is incredibly beautiful, but that element of her kind of being presented as something to be desired is not there because it's entirely set in a workplace environment. And she's dressed in a boiler suit for much of the film. (laughs) doesn't flatter anyone of any gender. (laughs) But it's interesting. I I don't think that's actually come from Ridley Scott himself because I found this quote about him talking about kind of the gender swapping of Ripley's character. And it was sort of disappointing. Apparently he said, what would you think if Ripley was a woman? She would be the last one you'd think would survive. She's beautiful. It's like just because the fact that she's beautiful means that she could not survive, which I thought actually meant that Sigourney Weaver probably brought so much more with her performance to that character than was probably on the page. Yeah, I mean, it it is an amazing performance. And not to pile onto Ridley too much, but apparently there was talk at one point where he said that in the final few scenes where she's in her tiny pants and vest combo. I don't know. I don't know why she's that undressed, but she is. The, well, to be in, fair, rewatching the film, you know, she's just sort of killed the alien. Yeah. She wants to go to sleep. Yeah, but in space, you'd be wearing a practical pair of long johns. Yeah, or fair enough. Boxes. I'm not going to defend not, that scene, but not yeah. Not little briefs. Anyway, I won't get too hung up on the underwear. The At one point, Ridley Scott was going to include a, a scene where the alien, who is in this film male, was going to start kind of touching itself and feel sexually aroused by Ripley in that state of undress. And apparently the studio said that's not a good idea. One of the great studio calls ever, by the way, because that is a yeah, terrible idea. Weird. So again, not to pun really too much, but I think you're right when you say that Sigourney Weaver bought a lot to this mm. performance. Final report of the commercial starship Nostromo. Third officer reporting. The other members of the crew, Kane, Lambert, Parker, Brett, Ash, and Captain Dallas are dead. Cargo and ship destroyed. I should reach the frontier in about six weeks. With a little luck, the network will pick me up. This is Ripley, last survivor of the Nostromo. 
I'm sort of torn having we watched this film about Ripley being classed as a final girl, although that's an incredibly debatable subject. I would personally go and say that she isn't because she is always strong and not presented as sort of someone that needs to find herself in a way because of this encounter yeah. with a threatening element. She was always the leader, the natural leader and kind of incredibly strong and not in need of anyone to prove to her that she can survive. Other than this idea of a kind of capable female protagonist, what in an, in an action film, what do you think Alien influenced? I mean, there's so much, but where do you want to start? I've got two to mention and they're very contradictory because one of them I think a lot of people think is not a good film. I think it's very uh, deeply interesting. You're going to say Event Horizon. I am going to say right. Event Horizon. <laughs> Event right. Horizon drinks so much from Alien. It certainly does. You're not a fan, are you? So much that it feels sick. <laughs> Did you really think you could destroy this ship? She's defied space and time. She's been to a place you couldn't possibly imagine. And now, it is time to go back. I know. To hell. You know nothing. Hell is only a word. The reality is much, much worse. Um, Event Horizon goes further than Alien mm-hmm. in in terms of kind of graphic horror and kind of slightly supernatural tones. Well, not slightly, overtly supernatural narratives as well that Alien just completely avoids. So it's, it is a space horror, but it really goes into sort of almost Lovecraftian cosmic horror elements, which kind of depart very radically. But the design of it and the buildup of it and kind of the very basic setup of having this crew of people encountering unimaginable horror in space on a spaceship is kind of always there but then a much better much more subdued example is Duncan Jones Moon perhaps you're imagining things what's going on where did he come from why does he look like me yeah moon in which a guy uh, lives on his own goes loopy deals with quote-unquote an alien presence no spoilers for that mm-hmm. um, it's brilliantly atmospheric in the same way other examples i thought about were things like um the blair witch project with some of the kind of the way it's shot more than anything like a lot of the handheld stuff which apparently ridley scott had to do because there wasn't enough room to have a big camera rig hmm. the kind of crew camera stuff in that feels quite blair witchy mm-hmm. elements of district nine with the body horror and him turning into an alien thing with his eye bulging out just hold on. Then I'm going to start pulling you in. Hey, Doc. Just hold on. Hang on. I am going to pull you in. Ryan, listen. Pull you in. You have to let me go. And gravity, obviously, with Sandra Bullock floating and around. And also, obviously, the Cloverfield Paradox, which came mm-hmm. out a few years ago, which I don't think is a particularly great example, but definitely drinks from Alien a lot. And I want to take it to other screens as well. So I have a distinct memory, again, from when I was much younger, of watching Red Dwarf. Did you ever see this show? No, I did not. BBC comedy sci-fi show, which dorks like me were quite into at a certain point. And they had an episode called Polymorph in which an alien character came on the ship and provoked each of the crewmates to feel a certain emotion very strongly. So something like anger and then would suck that emotion away from the character. So the rest of the episode, they didn't have any ability to feel anger. As far as I can see it, we have two options. One, take it on and kill it. Or two, run away. (laughs) Who's for two? Uh, Two sounds pretty good to me, sir. It's always been my lucky number. Right, well, let's load up Starbuck and get out of here. What about Lister? Oh, just seal the hatch from the inside. He'll be safe here until we're ready to go. 
Remember, it's out there, and it could be anything. Let's move it. Oh, what about the Space Corps Directive, which states it is our primary overriding duty to contact other life forms, exchange information, and wherever possible, bring them home? It's really good. I'd, I'd, I'd recommend people check it out. Also, Westworld TV of show. Of course. Androids You Can't Trust. Absolutely. Soulless, moralless androids rampaging around. Brilliant. The ones we love. And then finally, <laughs> my video game spot. Practically every game set in space has been influenced by Alien. I'm going to name some of the good ones. Things like Bioshock, Soma, which isn't set in space, but has a similar feel. Soma or Dead Space. And then the things that those games have taken mainly, I think, is this feeling of a working space that turns into a horror horror place. And then also sound design. Alien sound design. Watching again, I was just mm-hmm. blown away by how these kind of innocent sounds of things like wind chimes mm-hmm. or mechanical whirrings can be made to feel like you're in an alien space that hates you. So even the ship itself wants to destroy the crew in the same way that the alien does. So again, this is feeling that the workplace is somewhere that it's going to end you if you don't quit it. I mean, that is a fact of life. 18, Disengage. That's it from us this time around. Alien will be screening at the BFI South Bank from March 1st, including double bill screenings of Aliens on Sunday the 3rd and Saturday the 9th. We'll put a link in the pod description to further info and tickets. The Bigger Picture, brought to you by the British Film Institute, is produced by our crewmate Peter Sale. More of Pete's work at petersale.co.uk. You can contact me and Anna via Twitter. I'm at Henry H. Barnes and Anna is... Anna B. Demented. We'll be back in two weeks to talk about The White Crow, Rafe Fiennes' biopic of Soviet ballet supremo Rudolf Nereev, and men dancing movies. Anna, what on earth does that mean? Well, you put scary ballet stories, which is not a thing. <laughs> I wish it was a thing, but it is not yet. We'll find something before we We're going to be talking about Dancing Man. In the meantime, (laughs) your last line this week comes from, who else? William Shatner. We meet aliens every... I'm trying to do an impression, I can't. We meet aliens every day who have something to give us. They come in the form of people with different opinions. That's so deep. Words to live by. (laughs) A philosopher. Hashtag bless. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. 
quince.com slash style. 